0: Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon podcast. We are in our Advent series right now called Christmas Playlist. And in this series, we are taking a look at some of the lyrics in our favorite Christmas hymns. Now, these songs that we sing each year have some profound theological and scriptural truths in them, but we're in danger of missing it because of how familiar many of us have become with those songs. So I hope that you enjoy this message. And as always, feel free to find us online at tablechurchdsm.org. Well, if you would, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking there today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses 20 to 26. I encourage you to take the time to read this whole chapter sometime. It's a long chapter, but it is, oh man, it is dense and it is rich. And it's one of theologically, one of the most significant chapters, I think, that that Paul may have written but here's what it says 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 26. We read But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In the year 1927, Sigmund Freud, the great psychologist and notable atheist, wrote a little book, this one. It's called The Future of an Illusion. The Future of an Illusion. And the argument of this book is that religion or faith is, as the title suggests, an illusion. And that the future of this illusion is that it will slowly dissipate before the advance of scientific discovery and human reason. Now, uh, this little book had an explosive impact that is still felt today. And what he argues here is that faith Is a crutch. That religion is a crutch for weak minded people who just don't have the courage to face up to the fact that we're going to die and then it's going to be over. And so we had to concoct this fairy tale about an afterlife in order to make ourselves feel better about dying. And so really, it's just a way to assuage our death anxiety. That's all faith is. That's all religion is. It's just an illusion. That's That's Freud's view. And over the years, this view has worked its way kind of into not only popular, but also um, academic views of religion. In fact, there's some very famous, prominent atheists today that are still talking about the things that Freud wrote. Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris have developed the idea that Freud initially uh, characterized that people of faith are essentially children. Uh, that we just prefer to stay under the cozy roof of our daddy in the sky rather than stepping out into the real world. Now, let's just face it for a moment. These writers have a point. I mean, there's definitely some truth to the idea that for many believers, their faith is little more than a crutch. It just is there to kind of provide comfort. But they never really ask themselves, is this demanding anything of me? Or am I simply using it to feel better about things? Contemporary faith often just kind of papers over life's sorrows and chooses instead to focus on youthfulness and celebration as though that's all that there is in life. And so it's easy to understand this criticism. But the question is, is that all that faith is meant to be? Is it simply a crutch to help us hobble through life and deal with the fact that sometimes it's hard and then we die? Is that all it is? When Paul writes in our passage, in Christ all will be made alive, that death will be destroyed, are we reading the words of a man who refused to grow up and face the facts and instead develop the most elaborate lie ever to exist? Today we are kicking off our Advent series. By the way, it's not officially Advent yet. That's December 3rd, but I just figured we'd get in the Christmas spirit a little early around here. Our Advent series is called Christmas Playlist, and we're looking at uh, some of the most popular Christmas carols and just looking at some of the lyrics and identifying the theological and scriptural truths that are in these songs that we sing every year. And sometimes it gets to the point where we just kind of mindlessly mouth the words, right? But this year we're going to pause and we're going to say, no, actually there's some really deep theological truths going on here. Today we're going to talk about a line from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is an ancient song. It has roots going back to the 15th century. And the line we're talking about here comes from verse 3. It says, Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. So there it is. As Freud, Freud would point at that and say, see, that's the illusion I'm talking about. That's what I'm saying. Death's dark shadows put to flight. That's the promise of this song. There's another verse with a similar theme. It declares Emmanuel will give his people, quote, victory over the grave. Now, this song is a message that is rooted in Scripture. Passages like 1 Corinthians 15 that we just read. In the Bible, death is the great enemy that Jesus came to overthrow. It says in our passage that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Paul writes also, he says, death, where's your victory? Sin has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. Jesus really did put the shadows of death to flight. So is Freud right? Is it just a crutch here? Now, it's, it shouldn't surprise you. I don't, I don't entirely buy Freud's analysis, right? Right? Uh, to begin with, he's just empirically wrong. Uh, lots of religions throughout history haven't even had an afterlife um, in their theology or in their doctrine. I mean, uh, I, I think this is debatable probably, but I believe that God's truth is revealed over time throughout the scriptures. I think a case could be made that there's not much of an afterlife in view in books like Ecclesiastes, even. And, and so you can just point to religions and say, well, no, obviously, it's, if it's serving some sort of a function, it's not, the fu- it's not the one that Freud says it is because they don't even believe in an afterlife in this particular religion. But more, there are more reasons to think that, that, that Freud didn't have the whole picture and that these popular understandings that we might encounter today don't have the whole picture. There's a psychology professor in Texas named Richard Beck, and he took up this question. Is faith just a crutch for us to kind of hobble through life and deal with the fact that, you know, death is always looming for all of us? And what he did was he brought Freud into conversation with another giant in the field of psychology named William James. Now, William James um, wrote a big book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. and In this book, he analyzes the faith of, of many, many individuals. And, and What he find, finds is that, sure, there's plenty of believers who do the things that Freud suggested. Their faith is essentially a crutch. They never analyze it. They never think about it. just kind of there to make them feel better about hard things in life. They blindly follow it and assume everything is fine. But there are also people who do the exact opposite. There are people whose faith drive them into the very heart of pain. There are people whose faith caused them to cast off concern for themselves, concerns for comfort, and they spend themselves on behalf of others. Think about Mother Teresa. It is hard to look at a Mother Teresa and say, yeah, what a coward. She just wasn't facing up to the hard realities of life. It's a little hard to make that accusation, isn't it? See, what James found was that faith could just as well compel someone into the darkness and pain in life just as much as it could compel others to ignore it. What it means is that these people, they couldn't keep themselves away from the heart of suffering in the world. Now, theologian Jürgen Moltmann he sums it up like this. He says, the more a person believes, the more deeply he experiences pain over the suffering in the world. And so on this account of belief, it's doing the opposite that Freud suggested. It's not shielding us. It's actually compelling us into the hard things in life. And and what we find is that in every corner of the world throughout the last 2,000 years virtually, whenever there's something difficult, in 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 the heart of darkness in our world, you'll find Christians. Wherever there is pain, you'll find Jesus' followers pulling refugees off boats, setting up missions in the inner city revitalizing rural areas, running into war-torn areas. Look, if there's been a group that historically has not avoided the reality of pain and suffering, it's Jesus followers. They have often looked in the face of death and held their ground when many others didn't. I want to say that that is because Christ's victory over death is emphatically not a crutch. Now, sure, it is for some. But I would say what it's meant to be is more of a springboard. When we know that Christ was raised from the dead, we can't sit still anymore. We'll be missionaries like Paul, sharing the good news in word and deed wherever we go. Listen, this is my point today. Jesus' victory over death is not just comfort. It is also a call. It is also a call. Of course, of course we take comfort in it. I'm happy about the fact that Jesus defeated death and darkness and the enemy, right? I'm happy about that. It would be crazy not to take comfort and celebrate, rejoice in that. It says Christ will destroy all dominion, authority, and power in our passage. And that there will be a day of no more death and pain, it says in Revelation like, it'd be crazy not to be happy about that, right? But that's not all it is. The fact that death has been defeated is a call. It is a summons to join God in the thing that Christ began in the resurrection. It is to join God in renewing this world. Now, if we don't see this good news as a call then, and only comfort, then, it, then Freud's right. It really is it's just a crutch, And we've missed the point of the gospel. But it is so much more than that. And I want to illustrate that for you from our passage today. Now, something you'll notice about this passage, this passage kind of starts out small and ends up big, all right? So it starts in just one point, just one little point. The resurrection of Jesus. Nobody can read that, right? But it's there. It says Jesus. All right, this is Christ's resurrection here. Paul says he, that it is, it is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, all right? And so, so he starts here with the resurrection of Christ, and then he's going to widen things a little bit. He's going to widen the circle, and what he says is that just as in Adam all die, through Christ all will be made alive. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? He's not, he's not talking metaphorically here. No, he's talking about resurrection. All will be made alive. And so now we've got not just Jesus, we've got me and you and like all of us here. In this, like this is, this is the, the however many individual souls, people that the resurrection of Christ is going to affect, all right? And so we've got like everybody, right? And uh, then, no, actually before I move on, let me just point this out. This is a really important a uh, piece of, of theology for us to understand. Because c- what it means is that the, this popular idea that life after death is this immaterial kind of souls, immaterial souls floating on clouds kind of thing, right? Like that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach immaterial souls. It teaches resurrection. And resurrection is physical. It says in Christ, we will be raised just as Christ was raised. He was first, our turn is coming, it says. Okay, and then the passage isn't over yet. It actually actually makes the circle even wider. The circle gets even bigger here. This this idea that the resurrection is affecting even more things. It says in verse 24, he will destroy all dominion, authority, and power. And so now this is more than just personal salvation. This is more than just you and me having our sins forgiven, right? This is, this is cosmic in scope now. This is all of creation that we're talking about here. Now, this, this passage, it's like, a, it's like a mighty bell being rung and the, the sound of it reverberates out into all corners of Of creation. And so we're going to, that was a weird arrow. We're going to like call this one, this last one, the cosmos. All right. The universe, like all of creation, if you will. And, And Christ's resurrection has implications that reaches out into all of it. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus is not simply about your personal salvation. It is about the overthrow of darkness and the renewal of all that there is. To see how huge this is. And how much we often just kind of make it about my little dot right here. You know? How sad that we take this enormous gospel, this incredible good news, and we just make it, oh, just just me, just my little dot. Now I don't want to, at the same time, right? We can't minimize that either. Like, that's a big deal. Like if this dot represents you, guess what? Like the resurrection, that's that's what's coming for you too. Like, that's amazing, you know? But it's even more amazing than just that, and we can't let it just sit on that. We have to understand, like, it's for all of creation. Paul has all of creation in view here on his horizon as he writes this passage. Now, this is why it's not enough to simply affirm Jesus as a good moral teacher. You you can't just take the things he said without also taking the rest of it. Because Jesus' teachings point to a world where death has been defeated, but if death hasn't been defeated, then his teachings are hollow. For example, Jesus says things like, The last shall be first. He says, Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, and so on. Now, these are things that a lot of people, whether you follow Jesus or not, would generally affirm. We'd say, Yeah, sure, I'm good with with peacemaking and loving your neighbors, that seems like, you know, good advice. But the problem is that that, that isn't what they are. These teachings are not just good advice, not just practical advice with, on how to get along better with your neighbors. These teachings are instructions on how to live in a world where death has been defeated. I think the proof of this is in Jesus' command for example to to love your enemies he says and and when he says that to his followers he's talking to people with like real enemies not just online trolls you know like people who really wanted their destruction and Jesus is saying you gotta love them listen when you think about it all of Jesus' teachings are like this he says the last shall be first well you know that assumes that a new world is coming. If the last shall be first, well, when are they going to be first? They're going to be first when this new world arrives. Jesus is talking about new creation, If you really believe him when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, well, you got to believe that there's some other world coming at some point because right now it doesn't look like the peacemakers are that blessed. You look around the world today and peacemakers are often ridiculed and spit on and oftentimes even killed. And so when he says to his followers, love your enemies, the only way that that can make sense is if death has actually been defeated because otherwise that is foolishness. So the point is that This stuff here, if you want to call it the metaphysical claims that Christ makes, that's what makes Jesus' teachings make sense. You can't have the ethical claims without also having the metaphysical claims. You can't affirm what Jesus says about morality if you don't also affirm what Jesus says about reality. His teachings assume that there's evil and that, that death is bad and that both are being overthrown through His resurrection. And if you affirm what Jesus says about reality, then you affirm that God is moving in our world to redeem and to restore it, that you get to be a part of this grand mission to push back the darkness with Christ. It's not just comfort, it's a calling. And he writes says, "The mission of the church is nothing more or less than the outworking in the power of the Spirit of Jesus' bodily resurrection, and thus the anticipation of the time when God will fill the earth with his glory, transform the old heavens and earth into the new, and raise his children from the dead to populate the world, to populate and rule over the redeemed world he has made. He says, that, go back to that sentence. He says, our mission is the outworking of Jesus' resurrection. That is quite a sentence But this much should be clear. It's not permission to sit back and relax. It is a summons. It is a call. It's not permission to hobble along and use our salvation as a crutch. Listen, Jesus' resurrection is the initial invasion of a new world that is taking over the old one. One day the thing that God started when he raised Jesus from the dead will be completed. But until then, the church is a colony of the new creation that is invading the old one. We're like an outpost that's behind enemy lines, if you will. Listen, this is the reason we do Rise Up. It's why we do Immigrant Connection. It's why we try to fill our prayer room. It's why we worship. It's why we gather. It's why we preach. It's why we do all the things that we do. All these things are driving towards the same thing. It's all about invading the darkness with light. I don't see them as just nice things. I see them as the outworking of the resurrection, and that's what Christmas is. It is an invasion. It is another world breaking into this one in the form of a little baby. And that baby came to put the shadows of death to flight. You know, the week I wrote this sermon, my Twitter feed was full of news of a prominent atheist. I don't, hopefully I'll say her name correctly. Her name is Ayan Hersi Ali. Uh, but she converted to Christianity, apparently. And I'd never heard of her before. Apparently she's a big deal. She's a senior research fellow at Stanford, a prominent political commentator, and, and she was in the mix with real famous atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, she was Muslim when she was younger, and then she became an atheist, and then recently converted to Christianity. And so naturally, I saw this article, Why I Am Now a Christian, and people were making a big deal out of it, and so I thought, okay, I'll read this, you know? And I read it with interest. And, you know, the the one sentence that kind of stuck out to me that she said was this. She said, Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? What is the meaning and purpose of life? And obviously, you know, everyone's got different ideas of how important that question is or whether or not various systems can or can't answer it. But what I think it shows us is that whether you're a Christian or an atheist or anything else, we all need purpose. We all need meaning in our life. And, and she found that for, for her, atheism tried to offer it. Like her friends, they dreamed of a golden future ushered in by human reason when this illusion would one day be gone. And what she found was that it came up empty. That those promises were hollow. And so she, she turned to Christianity. You know, the promise of Christmas is that this world is infused with meaning and purpose. That's what our faith tells us. That this world is infused inherently with meaning. That we don't have to make it up. We don't have to ascribe meaning to it. That it's just there. Because it's anchored in God. That this world matters. And that Christ is redeeming it. And that he's calling us to join him in it. That we have a purpose in life. And I don't know, Freud, he might call that belief a crutch. I'd call it a calling. We all need purpose and meaning. Whether you're a Christian or an atheist, we find it in God's invitation to join him in renewing this world. So Jesus' victory over death should bring us comfort. How could it not? We can rejoice in the fact that death has been defeated and that we have a future hope. But the warning here is to let that good news be a calling, not a crutch. God has broken into our world at Christmas and now it's time to live that way. The message of the Bible is that we are in the grip of darkness and that we need to be redeemed and we need to be ransomed. We need Emmanuel to come and he has come to us and he has given us victory over the grave. And so today we have a reason to worship and we have a reason to sing. And so we're going to sing the song uh, that we just talked about. And as we do that, let's celebrate the fact that we have a God who really does give us victory over the grave. And let's remember that it is a springboard into action, a springboard into joining him and redeeming and renewing this world which he has made. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we ask that today um, you would shift our focus, shift it away from ourselves and shift it towards those that need you, towards a world that is hurting and is often lost. And so, Lord, I ask that just as your resurrection reverberated out into the cosmos and, Lord, just as now we know that in you we will live, Lord, may others also come to know and to find the goodness and the grace that only you can offer. We love you, God, and we pray these things in your name.